At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. I got to see another version of my life here. One in which I was given everything. Money, fulfillment of dreams, my father who loved me. As Prairie, I had none of these things. My life was one hardship after another, and then I met you. Nina saw the whole world. But I saw underneath it. I was pressed down like coal. I suffered. That's what an angel is. Dust pressed into a diamond by the weight of this world. You crushed me. Before I had the chance to become anything, you crushed me. But you didn't destroy me. I died and came back to life with something you will never have. You have violence and terror and loneliness. A clip from the OA second season, where Prairie, an obvious cipher for Sophia, unleashes her witch power against Hap, the obvious demiurge cipher. One scene of many between them in their eternal battle across dimensions and times. I'm sure you of the broken places are realizing that you've been present in all these conflicts between Akamoth and Yaldabaoth, or Tiamat and Marduk, or Yahweh and Leviathan. You've been around, even as you may have missed this very mystical and high weirdness show. Valentinus believed the world we live in was created by a cruel god, and slightly stupid. A god that will send you plagues, or requires sacrifices, or destroys Babylon. He wasn't wrong about that. The bastard had a mean temper. Humans can escape this world, and return to the real one. And for that, you needed to achieve the Gnosis. But hey, in a rare instance, the intro movie scene and the episode topic are the same. Yes, we'll be dealing with the very Gnostic theme, the OA, in this eternal now, as well as other Gnostic television and film. It's raining Gnosis. Hallelujah. This is the water, and this is the well. It's definitely been raining Gnostic theme cinematic content in recent times. False coded realities, multiverses replete with godlike threats, 
plots where a protagonist finds out their identity is a lie or a construct. Powerful but unhinged anti-heroines. It's all over the place. From WandaVision to Twin Peaks The Return. From Doctor Strange to everything everywhere at once. And the latter is a far superior film. From Severance to Stranger Things. From Westworld to Raised by Wolves. From Fringe to Russian Doll. And so forth and so many more. And I'm sure you can think of some yourself. You've been looking shit up on the internet. Uh, Rick, this is Gnosticism. I was told it was based on the Kabbalah. We're doing something much darker. Maybe it's because Gnostic ideas make sense as technology is caught up to the frenetic revelations and vision of the ancient heretics. Maybe the collective consciousness is realizing the truth about this Philip K. Dick world. As April DeConnick wrote, The ultimate concern of the Gnostic is to awaken the divine potential in each of us, to bring our permanent deep self to consciousness. And as Philip K. Dick wrote, Gnosticism is virtually a sign-value reversal religion. That is, it assumes the ostensible reality to be a fraud, concealing the true story which is 180 degrees opposite. Hence the need for the revelation of the Gnosis. Everything must be read backward. We are secretly in a giant prison, secretly enthralled. There is a deliberate occlusion practice on us by hostile warders. The truth is not just hidden, it is deliberately hidden to keep us in ignorance. Were we to know the truth, all would be turned around, all that we see. There is, then, in Gnosticism, a built-in revolutionary, subversive basis fighting the ruling powers of this world. If you want a picture of the future, imagine a boot stamping on a human face forever. The moral to be drawn from this dangerous nightmare situation is a simple one. Don't let it happen. It depends on you. Or maybe the powers and principalities are weaponizing Gnosticism because they know how well it works in hypnotizing humanity into a robotic slumber. Either way, you have arrived to the virtual Alexandria to wake up a little further, break the hologram of the Empire a bit more. Welcome you Johnny Cash Bodhisattvas, you modern day Tom Sawyers, your mind not for rent to any god or government. Welcome to Aeon Bite. We don't take prisoners but liberate them. We are not the final authority on anything but hope to be an endless possibility for everything. You are the final authority, have always been. We run with those searching for the truth and avoid those who have found it. We're writing our own gospel and living our own myth. You're a time traveler. Uh, I prefer the term time prisoner. 
To live is to risk it all. Otherwise, you're just an inert chunk of randomly assembled molecules drifting wherever the universe blows you. Oh, I'm sorry, Jerry. My meat sack incarnation is still Miguel Connor, your host and pompadus of Gnosis. Always an honor to be your madman across the waters of creation and imagination. Ooh. I've always liked this saying from the East. How can you tell in a Buddhist monastery when a monk has become enlightened? Simple. He stops meditating and goes to play with the monastery cat. That's us from the broken places. That's it. That's waking up. And in a way, that's the theme of the OA. Being present in the monumental ecstasy that is the innocent moment. Well, it's not really a measure of mental health to be well-adjusted in a society that's very sick. The OA really moved me, and I'm even more moved because our astral guest in this eternal now brings revelations galore, not just on the OA, but on other Gnostic and esoteric TV and film. That is the brilliant David Sweeney. He will be discussing his new book, which is cryptically entitled... Wait for it, the OA. Amazing book I highly recommend. Like in the late 90s, when so much Gnostic theme film was being pumped out, I believe there is a message we need to heed, for these are Gnostic times and the age of fucking Hermes. This is our last chance. This is us. We are the OA. You can't play God without being acquainted with a devil. We'll be mentioning Chris Knowles in the interview, as he has written a lot about the same topics, including the OA. As Chris wrote recently in the Secret Sun blog, There's no Storm, no One Punch Louie, no White Hats, no Tick-Tocking Clocks, no Lone Ranger riding into town at the last minute to save us all from destruction. We didn't get to where we are overnight, and we're not going to get out of it overnight either. We need to be as wise as serpents and as patient as saints. And I would say stop and play more with cats in monasteries. Yes, the saga of Sophia and the Demiurge is eternal, ongoing, and blowing out into popular culture like a synchromistic geyser. I know you're paying attention. Are you not entertained? Are you not entertained? Is this not why you were here? Plato and the other ancients saw the soulless female and in a great adventure through the spheres, in and out of matter. This motif has manifested in notable art expressions like Alice in Wonderland and The Wizard of Oz. I'm sure you can think of your own. The Gnostics modified this concept, making the souls fall into a traumatic and brutal experience, a crime of sorts, as shown in the exegesis of the soul, where the soul is kidnapped, beaten, and raped by the Archons once she falls into matter, or the abusive brutality against the world soul that happens in the secret book of John, or the Simon Magus myth. This crisis is meant to drown her in amnesia, 
Maker becomes subservient to the natural order of the Black Iron Prison. You've stolen my dreams away. All things change, lady. Dreams are my speciality. Through dreams, I influence mankind. My dream is of eternity with you. That's what you see today in visual content with Gnostic themes. Gnostic-friendly directors like David Lynch, Luke Besson, the Wachowskis, or douchebag Josh Whedon often show their heroines tormented to the point they are MK-Ultra'd into forgetting their original state. Same with the Duffer brothers in Stranger Things, and obviously with Prairie in the OA, or to an extent, Wanda in her Marvel cinematic appearances. In many of these plots, the villain simply wants her to himself as a prize or source of energy. I'm so close to opening the park that to acknowledge your consciousness would have destroyed my dreams. So we're trapped here. Inside your dream. You'll never let us leave. Forgive me. Yes. Sophia is crying out for us to rescue her, or at least understand her story. That eternal saga of her fighting her bastard son, Yaldabaoth. You are in the middle of this story, because it is your story too. With the monastery cat, hopefully. And it's time you realize this before all of humanity finds itself in a bad Hollywood movie plot for eternity. Let us find out more with our interview with David Sweeney. The best way to think about it is like this. There are all these dimensions, worlds, alternate realities, and they're all right on top of each other. Every time you make a choice, a decision, it forks off into a new possibility. They're all right here, but inaccessible. The NDEs were like a way to travel through them, but temporarily. We wanted choices, chances. The movements would allow us to travel to a dimension permanently, stay there. A new life in a new world. To us, that was freedom. What will it look like when we open the tunnels of the other dimension? I don't know. I've never done it. What? All I know is that it would be invisible. The person leaving this dimension would experience a great acceleration of events, but no break in time-space. It's like jumping into an invisible current that just carries you away to another realm, but we had to have all five movements, and we had to do them with perfect feeling. This is the Aeon Byte interview, and we definitely have the pleasure of being joined by... David Sweeney to discuss his book, The OA. David, thank you very much for coming on the show. Oh, great to be here. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. Pleasure is all ours. Uh, as I mentioned before, definitely overdue to tackle this uh, an amazing show and uh, all around esoteric content that was uh, yeah, the OA, very short lived. And we will unpack all of it in your book, does an excellent job 
of taking us on a journey that goes beyond into some powerful themes. And with us, too, we also have the Moondog Vance. Vance, how are you doing? I'm fine. Looking forward to hearing about the OA. I haven't seen it, but uh, it sounds like a very interesting show. We're also going to talk about other things as well. Indeed. Yes, uh, you're one of the smart people who've actually canceled Netflix. So uh, (laughs) I don't think you can get the OA anywhere else, as far as I know. So No. (laughs) Wonderful. Well, David, um, before we get into your book, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, unless you have been taken over by another (laughs) dimensional intelligence and uh, there's somebody else with you. But in this dimension, who are you? Well, in this dimension, okay, so I'm an academic. Um, I'm a lecturer, You, what, what in America, I guess, is called a professor. I'm a lecturer um, in the design history and theory department of Glasgow School of Art. Um, so I, there I teach, um, I specialise in popular culture. But my, my background's in literary theory. My first uh, degree, my undergraduate degree at the University of Glasgow was in uh, English literature and language. Then I did a master's degree at the art school, which was about Marvel Comics. And I developed that into my PhD, which was about the relationship between fictional worlds and copyright law. Um, and that was, I got my PhD in 2008, and I've been teaching um, at the art school ever since. Um, so this is my first uh, book on the OA, and I have another one coming out later this year. It's actually, it should have been out by now. It's delayed at the printers on the British um, science fiction writer, Michael Marshall Smith, who's heavily influenced by Philip K. Dick. And I'm working on another book right now about um, the Danish uh, film director, Nicholas Vinden Refn. So yeah, that's me. Wonderful. And yeah, I never heard of, uh, this book series, Constellations, I'm so happy the publisher or the publicist uh, got a hold of me, uh, studies in science fiction, film, and TV. And when I look at their series, I'm like, this is a, a who's who's of Gnostic film. They do uh, oh, yes. uh, yeah, summaries and expositions on 12 Monkeys, Blade Runner, Children of Men, uh, Dune, Ex Machina, Inception, uh, Mad Max, Robocop, and all these amazing kind of, you know, high intellectual or yes. famous science fiction books. Uh, how did you, uh, yeah, they got Minority Report coming up, Aliens. Uh, uh, how did you get a hold or tell us more about this publisher? Um, so the publisher and um, the editor of that series is a guy called John Atkinson, who's a really brilliant editor. So Constellations and its companion um, series, Devil's Advocate, which focuses on horror films and TV series. There's a great book in that series on Firewalk With Me um, that I read and I thought I, I really want to be published by, by Auteur. Um, that's the name of the publisher who have since been acquired by Liverpool University Press. So I just sent John an email and he's a really lovely guy, very open um, to proposals from writers and he'd never seen the OA either um, so I, I sent him a proposal um, he asked me a couple of changes which I did and then he commissioned the book and it was very very easy um, I'd already written one piece about the OA for a, an American comparative literature journal called The Comparatist so um, I was able to give him that and samples of my other uh, academic writing 
Um, and he's just been great ever since, you know, really hugely supportive um, of developing the project and the same with the book on, on Nicholas Reffin. So I highly recommend both the Constellation series and the Devil's Advocate series to, to your listeners. I would highly recommend it too. I, I really enjoyed your book. I love the size of the book, small pocket books and, uh, uh, your work is excellent. And I have a feeling the other ones are too. And I look forward to mining because this is, uh, the kind, this is the kind of stuff we need today, uh, especially good insights on some of the, the best films and certainly some of the best, uh, Gnostic theme films. So, uh, we'll let, why don't we move to the OA? For those who haven't uh, watched it, uh, like Vance and others, uh, and again, it was a, it's a very niche show. Could you give the audience a summary of the OA? Sure. So the, the OA, um, as Miguel said, was two seasons on Netflix. It was commissioned for uh, by Netflix, part of their original um, series. So it's co-created by Britt Marlin, who also stars in it, and Zal Batmanglige, who uh, directs most of the episodes. And they came from um, American indie films. They made two really great films together, um, one called uh, Sound of My Voice, which is highly influential on the OA and was actually initially designed as um, a TV series, but they couldn't get funding for it. And made another movie, actually, which wasn't an indie movie. It was a studio film called The East which was uh, produced by Ridley Scott. So that got them kind of mainstream attention. Uh, Britt Marlin's also kind of working actor. She's been in a few other movies, a British uh, police t- TV series where she played an American detective. Um, it's about a young woman played by Britt Marlin called Prairie Johnson, um, who's blind, has been blind since childhood, um, who uh, disappears for seven years when she's abducted in her early 20s by an obsessive scientist called Hap, who is um, trying to get access to the afterlife. Um, And he's trying to do this through near-death experiences, not his own, through people who have had near-death experiences that he encounters, and that includes Prairie, who's gone blind after an NDE in her childhood, which is in Russia rather than in America, um, and she is kidnapped by him and imprisoned in this dungeon uh, beneath his house in some remote part of the States, along with another bunch of people who have had NDEs. Um, and she eventually escapes. So that experience is told in flashback in the first season. Um, the first season opens with her returning to her family um, and, you know, the mystery about where she's been. Um there's also a strong suggestion that she's making it all up, that she is, uh, it's a bit like the end of um, Usual Suspects, you know, where you've got um, a character verbal who seems to be improvising the story. There's a suggestion that she might be an unreliable narrator to this group of uh, schoolboys and one school teacher that she's assembled in Crestwood, which is the... Uh, um, the Michigan uh, suburb or the Illinois suburb, I can't remember which. I think it's Michigan. It is Michigan. It is, yeah. Yeah, and uh, she, uh, I don't, don't want to spoil it for people. Hopefully this will stimulate people to, unfortunately it is only available on Netflix, um, people to watch it. So she has all these strange experiences. I won't even tell you what the OA means because that kind of spoils it as well. Um, 
but basically she begins to realise that she, what, what we discover is that NDEs don't give you a, a glimpse into the afterlife as Hap believes. They give you a glimpse into other lives. So it's about a multiverse. Um, and I talk about that a lot in the book, comparing it to other multiversal fiction like Phil K. Dick and Michael Moorcock. Um, and the second season deals much more with it. It's set across two universes uh, in the multiverse. And um, unfortunately, it was cancelled after that. Um, and there was hope that it would be continued in another form or on another network. But that hope seems to have gone. And uh, which is unfortunate because, it, it, as you know, Miguel, having seen it, there's a real cliffhanger. Yeah. <laughs> a real cliffhanger. Huge one. A huge one at the end of season two, which brings it into the realm of metafiction. Um, and it's, you know, really kind of frustrating that it's not going to be uh, continued. Well, as far as we know just now. Um, and it deals with lots of Gnostic themes. Um, it draws on a lot of different sources, as I explain in the book. Um, I'd also compare it to things that it doesn't necessarily draw on. Um, and yeah, it's just, it's a really beautiful show as well. Um, Zalbert Mangley's the director, um, is a real master. So it's a very kind of beautiful show to watch. Um, and there's bits of it which, one of the things I really like about it is that it is completely uncool. <laughs> yeah. As you'll know, a lot. what's really important to it are these dance movements that are performed by um, Prairie and her allies, um, they, their fellow prisoners, um, which allow access to the multiverse. And they do look the first time you see them quite silly. Um, but within the context of the show, they make sense. And uh, it's also got a really kind of, although it is, as you say, Miguel, really niche, it's got a, a hardcore fan base who um, campaigned, obviously unsuccessfully, to get it brought back on the air. Um, and they, they've made their own fan films and fan fiction, and the dance movements are very important to that. And I was really kind of quite moved by how the fan community responded to the lockdowns for the pandemic, you know, using these uh, dance movements, kind of sense community with each other. Um, Mind you, some of the fans have already been very critical of the book. So, um, you know. Really? Yeah. What? I don't think. Um, I think some, some of them have been critical. It's an academic book, so it is quite expensive, um, particularly given the size. I mean, it's 35,000 words, and the paperback in the UK is like £20. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's an expensive book. <laughs> yeah, although I can give a discount for your, your listeners at the end. I can. Give them a link and a code. All right. Yeah, yeah. Definitely share a link or information. It, it's, it's worth it. Wow. Yeah, these academic books are brutal, like Brill or Oxford Press and all that. It's like, oh, <laughs> I'm lucky. I, I do get uh, review copies, once, but uh, <laughs> once in a while, there's one who's stubborn. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, the hardback is some ridiculous price as well. But that's the idea is that academic books, particularly hardbacks, are bought by, by libraries. Oh, but the author um, try and kind of bridge that gap, um, so that you know you know you don't need to be an academic. This was not written, although I am an academic. Most of and I, I have written a lot of academic material. Like the, most of my stuff is, um, I think, written to be accessible. 
Um, the book I've, I've written on Michael Marshall Smith isn't being published by an academic publisher. It's being published by Subterranean Press, who are a horror fiction uh, publisher. So all the, the books on, on the Constellation series and Devil's Advocate are written by academics or journalists, but they're all very accessible. I think the, the impression I got from, well, not the impression, the emails I got from some uh, fans of uh, the OA were that, you know, it wasn't to be interpreted. <laughs> and I was like, well, you know, that's kind of what I do. It's my yeah, exactly. That's the nature of uh, your profession. <laughs> yeah, and I think they didn't, some of them took, you know, offence at me pointing out the sources for um, Marlin and Batman Leach's ideas, um, which some of them were not aware of, you know. Um, but there were, equally, there are people on the OA subreddit defending me, and I've had some nice emails as well from people. Ooh. So Yeah, I'll have to check it out. Yeah, sometimes people think that these concepts were invented by Marvel or the shows and the Netflix in the last, since 2016. That's when uh, movie cinema appeared or something like that. It's like, no, these ideas always go back. <laughs> Nothing new under the sun, as much as the OA looks original and yeah. fresh, like you write, uh, somebody's basing it on something, whether it's conscious or unconscious. Yeah, and I mean, I don't point out these influences or similarities to kind of diminish it in any way. No. It's a very original, very. you know, assemblage of those elements. Um, it's just, you know, that's part of the nature of that type of writing. But I think, you know, the OA, I mean, a lot of my interest in... Um, Gnostic ideas and multiversal ideas came from reading comic books in the 70s. Oh, yeah. You know, I mean, I learned a lot from reading Alan Moore. Oh, yeah. And then later on, Grant Morrison, you know. So, um, and I think that, you know, being turned on to something else um, is one of the great aspects of popular culture, you know, leading you into areas of, of other works of fiction, but also works of philosophy and so on. Um, yeah, yeah, well said indeed. And uh, yeah, even though it was canceled, David, uh, have you heard the rumors that uh, it might not be? I mean, there have been, yeah, obviously the fan base of the OA has all their videos and blog posts, but last, I think, fall, it seemed like both uh, uh, Zal and Britt Marlin were putting all these cryptic stuff on their Instagram and all yes. like lightning bolt pictures and codes and everybody was like, oh my God, it might be coming back. Have you seen that? I have seen it and I was kind of intrigued as well, um, but they've announced a new project I don't right. know if it's called The Retreat, which um, is a sort of whodunit. You know, it's one of these, um, it's a bit like Knives Out, you know, the idea that... Um, there's some kind of like generation Z, Z uh, software gazillionaire invites all these people to his remote um, house, the retreat of the title, and is killed. And then oh, multiple people have to investigate it. So I have to admit, when I saw that announcement, it didn't really grab me. Obviously, I'll watch it because I think one of the things about um, the two of them is that they take established ideas and tropes from popular fiction um, in the way that somebody like Alan Moore or Grant Morrison would and really kind of, you know, turn them on their head or invert them or play with them 
um, to do something really fresh. So it'd be great if they come back, but I can't see it happening, certainly not since this um, announcement, but I'd be glad to be proven wrong. Yeah, yeah, it would be nice, but it's not as easy as turning on the switch, getting all the actors back and everything else would take uh, take a bit of time. Uh, yeah, we'll see how this new one is. Yeah, it's the whole idea, the Gnostic idea of deconstructing or breaking what can be broken, as the saying goes, about oh, yeah. the about the Gnostics. Uh, and, uh, yeah, it's interesting, like you mentioned, David, uh, Ridley Scott was a producer of the East, of course. Uh, you got to put on your tinfoil hat when it comes to occultism, a conspiracy, because when his hands are in things, you know, weirdness is going to come. But um, what about the backgrounds of Britt Marling and Zal? I won't say his last name because I'm going to butcher it. But uh, w- do you see any esoteric influence? I mean, Britt Marling, what, she? I know she's from Chicago, and she went to Georgetown, and she did a stint in, I think, Goldman Sachs. Uh, but uh, do the, do the and Zal, I think he's Persian, so of course, uh, the mystic. There's a mystic influence right there for most Persians. But uh, any um, interests or hints about their background, why they might be interested in this kind of uh, themes and these themes? Um, to be honest, beyond a very kind of basic look into their life. And I do this with most people I write about. I don't really research um, people's biography that much. So um, what I think is really interesting about about both of them, and you really see this in the film Sound of My Voice and in the OA, is, um, and to a less extent in East, is the way that they keep their eye on what's happening in the underground, what's happening in esoteric circles. So... Sound of My Voice, which is a great film, um, deals with a cult leader played by Britt Marlin, who may or may not be a time traveller, who's come from um, like 2054 to warn people in 2013 that America's going to collapse, there's going to be a limited nuclear war, then a civil war in America. And it's very obviously drawn from the John Titor story. You know, are you familiar with that, the time travel story? No, I'm not. So John Titor was created by Joseph Matheny. Uh, Joseph Matheny also created Ong's Hat, which was one of the first augmented reality games, um, an online game. And he's a fascinating person. Um, he also uh, is a fan of the OA. So what really, you know, when I was watching the OA, I was getting a lot of these references to things like, um, the, as I mentioned in the book, another augmented reality game called um, the Zhejun Institute. And the Zhejun Institute was uh, created by Jeff Hull in, I think, 2010, which was one of these, you know, LARPing games. And the the OA borrows heavily, heavily from the Zhejun Institute and from the kind of mock documentary that was made about it called The Institute by Spencer McCall, uh, who Spencer McCall then sold the rights to it. It was made into a short-lived TV series called um, Dispatches from Elsewhere, um, which you might have seen. It was on just before, probably 2019. Um, I don't know if it will be renewed. It seemed to be stopped because of the pandemic. Um, So what they they were doing in Sound of My Voice and and in uh, the OA 
um, and to an extent in the East, they're looking at what I guess you could call sort of 14 ideas, you know, or esoteric ideas. Right. So that's what, like a lot of science fiction or fantasy writers would do, you know, for television or for movies. So they were looking at those things and using them as the kind of raw material for their particularly, and I don't mean this in a bad way, but kind of humanist vision of things. They're very concerned with character and all the works that they make, with power relationships, um, with, um, you know, you can really see this in the OA, for example, in the kind of suburban setting that's used in the first season with ideas of, like, you know, isolation, anomie, um, I see that the Crestwood setting in the first uh, season is really symbolising what happened to the American middle class after the financial crash, 2008. And it's kind of symbolised by the unfinished house that they gather in. And there's also talk about in the book, um, uh, Britt Marlin's become close friends with Naomi Klein, you know, the Canadian journalist. Right. Um, the Shock Doctrine probably best known for No Logo, her book about neoliberal capitalism was a big hit in the 90s. So I think that they're they're really great at drawing from popular culture um, and from the underground. You know, there's ideas that you can can see that's coming there from, you know, things like situationism or discordianism, these kind of, you know, sort of anarchist ideas about toying with reality, which is also... um, you know, really prominent in, say, the work of Grant Morrison, which is why I talk about Grant Morrison so much in the book. Um, I don't know, you know, I don't know anything else about them, and I don't really want to know anything else about them. I like the, um, I <laughs> like the fans of the OA, you like the mystery. <laughs> I like the mystery. But I do think Brett Marlin's a really fascinating person because she walked away from that, as she's written about it, she walked away from Goldman Sachs. She didn't study drama at university. When she was at Georgetown, she, she studied economics. I think she, well, she might have done drama as a, a minor or something like this. It's funny, Chris Knowles from um, Secret Sun, who I know has been a guest with you a few times, he, it, you know, semi-seriously refers to Brett Marlin as a CIA agent. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's very yeah. to do. But, she, you know, she's this... For people who have never seen it, she's a very strikingly beautiful, tall, blonde, sort of Nordic-looking woman mm-hmm. who yeah. could have taken a, a much easier path than she has. You know, and she's written about the kind of sexy roles that she was offered and declined. Um, and what I th- think is really fascinating about both of them, uh, both her and Zal, is that they're talking about new forms of narrative, new forms of storytelling. Um about getting away from, first of all, she said, you know, she wanted to get away from the idea of a single protagonist. She wanted to have multiple pro- protagonists, which is true of the OA, but it's hardly the first show to do that. And now she's she's been talking about um, removing antagonism and therefore the need for a protagonist from um, their work completely. Although I, I don't know that that's actually possible. You know I mean? if you believe that the model that drama always needs conflict. Um, but there's a great compassion in all their work, which I find, that, I guess that's what I meant by humanists. There's a great kind of compassion in their work um, that kind of 
it's holistic. You know, it looks at how political and mystical and um, pop cultural narratives and discourses coexist. You know, and that you know, there, there's a sort of idea that you know nothing is unimportant in in their work, which I find really fascinating and really, um, really you know, engaging um, as a viewer when I'm watching their, their stuff. And they they must um, be widely read in this or this kind of field of of esoterica and Gnosticism because there are so many elements of it um, that it, it's not the work of amateurs. No, no. Like one scene, she quotes uh, Krishna Murti while she's talking yes. to the teacher. I mean, it's it's all over there. And yes, um, Chris does a great job in his uh, exploration of the OA in his book, The Endless American Midnight. Yes. He does a great case how uh, Marling is trying to show sort of a, a female Freemasonry and initiation into mm-hmm. a large order. So, yeah, he goes into some great places just like you yeah. do, too. And, yeah, you're talking about, I think, one theme that you just mentioned. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. I believe it's Max Weber's The Disillusion with the Modern World. And in that way, the OA is similar to, for example, Stranger Things, as you mentioned, mm-hmm. or Sense8, or yeah. some of this newer content uh, where uh, young people are just outcasts and they have to join together and try to become their own heroes in this fallen world. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, like, particularly with... Um... Stranger Things, you know, I think there was maybe a sort of sense at Netflix that it could go either way, that, you know, the big hit could be the OA or the big hit could be Stranger Things. But it was always going to be Stranger Things because it is more, it's lighter, although the first season's pretty dark. But it's got the nostalgia angle and all that, yeah. Yeah, which is maybe a kind of comforting distance. Uh Um, And, you know, the the creators of um, Stranger Things and Brit Marlins, Abat and Gleage were, were, were friends, you know, they hung out together. And of course, both the OA and Stranger Things borrow from um, the great Canadian film Beyond the Black Rainbow, which I'm sure you're familiar with. Oh, yeah. Classic. Oh, a great film, you know. Um, Stranger, uh, Sense8, I think, well, I don't think Sense8 was really brilliantly executed. I think there were a lot of great ideas in it. I think it was maybe over-ambitious, although it could have played out over... I mean, it was cancelled too after two seasons, but I think a coda, the a sort of coda film that Netflix allowed him to make. But, of course, you know, the OA was extremely ambitious as well. 
Um, and I do think that they had planned out meticulously what they wanted to do over the five seasons that they'd initially been led to believe they were going to get to deliver. Um, and, uh, you know, you mentioned Max Faber there. Max Faber's, you know, the great master of disenchantment in classical sociology. You know, he looked at the modern world initially, you know, as a, a sociologist writing as the industrial revolutions unfolded in front of him. Um, he kind of, you know, Max Weber wrote a lot about bureaucracy and the need for bureaucracy, but kind of saw how dehumanising bureaucracy was getting and how bad it would become and had a bit of a sort of, you know, kind of breakdown sort of, um, which reorientated his thought and that was his return to a kind of more mystical view of the world. Nothing like you would get, I mean, he remained a social scientist, so it's not like, you know, say the kind of mysticism of Jung or, you know, um, or even Wilhelm Reich. Um, it was still, you know, kind of rigorous sociology, but with this idea of disenchantment, which is similar to Nietzsche's idea that something vital um, is being removed from human experience. There's a diminution of human experience because of the forces of modernity, the forces of capitalism. And that you can see that throughout um, Marlin and uh, Batman Gleesh's work. In Sound of My Voice, the cult that is formed in Los Angeles by Marlin's character, Maggie, who claims to be the time traveller, are all these isolated, you know, 20, 30 something and older people who want, who find that there's something lacking in their lives, that their lives are not authentic, you know, their lives don't have have real meaning anymore. And the, the kind of post-apocalyptic future that Marlon talks about, Marlon's character talks about, she says that in the future, although there's no recorded music, there's no culture industry, there is an infrastructure. There is, um, there are communities, they've rebuilt America as part of America, which is all from the John Titor story. Um, and she, you know, this is attractive to these these people in the 21st century that she's travelled back to meet. She said, you know, food's better, people get on better, there's a spirituality, um, life is full of music and dancing, um, there's a folk culture that there isn't, a, you know, kind of culture industry, as Adorno would say. And, of course, you know, that's attractive to these um, mutually isolated um you know, citizens of, of California where the film is set who whose lives are meaningless. And as I said earlier, you know, Sound of My Voice um, was meant to be a TV series. They didn't have the funding for it and they kind of reformulated it into the OA. So a lot of the ideas are in the OA. Um, and the, the group that um, Prairie Johnson, Marlon's character in the OA forms in Crestwood, are all traumatised to a greater or lesser degree. Um, you know, there's there's a transgender character who's played by a transgender actor um, who is, you know, rejected by his father. Um, there's the, the kind of jock character who seems to be, like, you know, the model student, sort of like Laura Palmer from Twin Peaks. Right. He's not in a seedy underworld. He's just trying to hold his family together because his father's absent, his mother's an alcoholic. There's the, the character who is the, um, sort of the school bully um, who 
just wants to escape to become like a celebrity trainer, um, both a trainer for celebrities and a trainer who is a celebrity. Um, and, you know, this is, there, there's the, the orphan character who is a heavy drug user. And there's the school teacher who is, you know, lonely and, um, you know, just kind of dragging herself through her job and so on. And this is what I mean about the compassion in, in their work. Um, and you see this in the East as well. And you also see it in the first film that, that Marlon made and co-wrote with another director called Mike Cahill, which is Another Earth, um, which is another multiverse film. Well, well, it's sort of a multiverse film. Um, you know, about this idea of loneliness, of isolation, what um, Emile Durkheim, the great soci sociologist, would call anomie. Um, you know, the idea of normlessness, that, that for all the kind of pleasures of a so-called developed society with all its technology and so on, there's something central that's missing. Um, and the, the, the isolation that people experience is killing them. So it's interesting to see how that then has its real life um, correlation in the OA fandom. Um, which is small, but you know, devoted, like really dedicated to the show. Maybe to the extent where, if somebody writes a book, a book about it, they get annoyed. Um, maybe you know, sort of tarnishing the. They're the, gonna cancel you. <laughs> oh, that, that's inevitable. But uh, you know, tarnishing the, the the perfection of of particularly Brett Marlin. But um, yeah, I mean, like, the I think. You know, you saw you see that in Stranger Things, but as you say, Miguel, with the the nostalgia that's in Stranger Things, it does create a kind of catchy element to it. Um, I know Chris Knowles completely dismisses um, anything after season one, and I don't disagree. Uh, yeah, I would agree. I mean, there's a big drop off. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've not even bothered with the new one. But Chris is also quite dismissive of season two of The OA, and I actually prefer season two to season one. But you can see how there's so much foreshadowing and prefiguring in season one of season two that they really seem to have worked all this out. They had their cosmology in place. And, of course, the frustration about season two is that there were all these elements introduced, like Old Knight, you know, the, the psychic octopus. <laughs> the Cthulhu figure, yeah. The Cthulhu <laughs> figure, exactly. You know, there was so much that, that you know, you just wanted to see developed. And, um, and with that superb finale of, um, of uh, the second season, which raises so many questions and brings it into, as I said earlier, this, this area of metafiction. Um, and it... It seems to me to be very influenced by Inland Empire with David Lynch. Um, so I think what you've got in the OA is there's, it really responds to the kind of history of, of ideas, esoteric ideas and, and Gnostic ideas and the representation in fiction, cinema, television. Um, and I think it's also very fresh in its engagement with now, you know, and with this really strange century that we find ourselves in. Um, which, you know, get stranger by the day. Yeah. It I blame it on David Bowie's death. The reality uh, just fell apart after the star man left us. Oh, well. <laughs> it's as good enough reason as anything, right? <laughs> well, why not? You know, and, 
Um, I think it prints all these people kind of leaving at the same time. Yeah, in 2016. Yeah. Yeah. But there's also that that theory that I've become fascinated with, and I might try and write something academically about it, that, you know, the, the world did end in 2012. And that everything's been, you know. Yes, I've heard that too. Yeah, why not? <laughs> and all the kind of the craziness and what's also I've noticed recently, um, there's a great new book, um, an, an academic book on the publisher Verso um, called Scorch, Scorching the Air by Jonathan Creary, an academic. It's written about like the role of the observer and so on. And in it, you know, he says that we, we have got to get away from this idea that the internet is um, indispensable. You know, that we need to, to, to walk away. We, you need to physically get away from the internet. And, of course, you've got Zuckerberg, you know, going on about the metaverse, uh, yeah. which nobody's buying. But <laughs> <laughs> the, the whole metaverse thing relies upon the mobile internet. You know, the idea that you're always online mm-hmm. because you've got mobile devices and so on. And, um, you know, what, what's fascinating there is, you know, this idea that, that alternatives um, like the one that, that Marlon, Marlon's character presents in Sound of My Voice, where, you know, like this is a future which on one level seems um, primitive compared to your modern society. But on the other hand, is healthier mentally, physically, psychically, spiritually than the world that you live in. So you've got the metaverse, which, again, I don't think it's, it's going to happen. But the metaverse just looks like hell. You know, it's it <laughs> some sort of you know demonic dimension. Uh. Would want. So in um, in my teaching at the the art school here in Glasgow. Um, a source that I use a lot, and I think I mentioned in the book, is um, Guy Debord, who I mentioned earlier on, the French avant-gardist who um, was involved in the Situationist International, who were an artistic and political radical movement um, in Europe, and then there was chapters in America and, and, and uh, in Canada. And Guy Debord wrote his book, The Society of the Spectacle, it was published in 1967, where he looks, is influenced by Marx, by Karl Marx's idea of false consciousness and commodity fetishism. And he looks at mass media and modern society and he's like, this is not real life. You know, this is, um, you know, this is, as he says at one point, the, the moment of the true is the moment of the false. So Guy Debord, so some people kind of dismissed him. I mean, he was an alcoholic. He took his own life because of that. There was a lot of shady things about him as well. He was, you know, suspecting a murder in France. Um, but he's a huge influence on Grant Morrison, huge influence on the Invisible technology. Oh, wow. Um, if you remember the cover of, and I know this because Grant Morrison's told me this. Oh, wow. If you look at the cover of one issue of the Invisibles where um, – the character Ragged Robin says, what's my revolutionary agenda, boss? Yeah. And um, someone else says, consume, right? It might be King Mob. And the whole thing's, like, you know, kind of cut up letters, like, a you know, a kind of kidnap demand or something like this. Um, all these ideas are coming, like, you know, Grant was a punk. Punk was heavily influenced by Guy Debord, uh, by the situationists. Um, their ideas of... Uh, um, Detournement, which translates from French as to ambush, 
So, you know, you take aspects of, of the existing, the official culture, and you recombine them. And the most sort of obvious example of that would be, um, you know, the Sex Pistols record, God Save the Queen. Mm-hmm, yeah. Cover of that, you know, is the official portrait of the, the Queen, whose jubilee it is up here soon. Um, and, you know, she's got the safety pin through her her lips, and, you know, the, it's cut up uh, words from newspapers that spell out the title, God Save the Queen. Um, so the is this idea that you take the existing the official culture and you recombine it um, to make a, a critique of that existing culture. Then there's what's called recuperation by the situationists, which is the opposite of um, determinable. And quite often the next stage, it's when something that is radical or challenging, like punk, is then heavily commercialized and genreified to make it you know, easily repeatable and identifiable and so on. Right. So Gidebor's ideas about um, city life, about, you know, the situationists would either deliberately um, not sleep for days or they would take drugs or both and wander around Paris or whatever city they were based in on what they called a derive, a drift, and try and reimagine the city, quite often using randomness or using things like the tarot, using magical ideas to try and rediscover the city, to, to, to um, recover what they call direct living. And you can really see that in Grant's work. You can see it in uh, uh, The Away, you can see it in Sound of My Voice, you can see it in The East, uh, that film East. This idea that you know, there is a real world out there, but you c- in order to get it, to get at it, you need to, as you said earlier on, break what, what needs to be broken. You know, whether that be breaking out of, you know, the, the kind of misery me of the self or, you know, breaking out of society or so on. And Guy Debord's ideas are, are now found in this book, Scotch, uh, Scotch in the Earth, Guy Debord is mentioned. He's, you know, he's been very important. Then the ideas have kind of been marginalised. Now they're coming back. And what people might find if they go and investigate Guy Debord is... Um, how, many, how much his, his ideas are similar to another French philosopher, um, Jean Baudrillard, who I'm sure we're all familiar with. Mm, yeah. You know, his, his influence on the Matrix, right? Um, which is, of course, made by the Wachowskis and made Sensei. Well, the reason for that is that Jean Baudrillard notoriously just nicked ideas from people left, right and centre and never gave him any credit for it. But if you look at the situation, so if you read Society of the Spectacle, you can get it easily enough for free online. Guy Debord's spirit would be happy with you not buying the book, right? Um, <laughs> the, these these kind of these ideas that that um, you know whether you, you believe that it's you know, come from a Gnostic perspective or if you believe we're in some assimilation or both. Um, they echo back to uh, a variety of sources, including this idea of false consciousness from Marx. You know, you can go back much further, obviously, to Plato's cave. But when Marx talks about false consciousness and commodity fetishism, he's talking specifically about capitalism. And he's talking about the, the you know, while the Industrial Revolution is happening, he's witnessing it and he's witnessing how life is changing, experience is changing values, not just economic values, but, you know, 
Um, Marx says that all that is solid melts into it. You know, all the old certainties of life are torn asunder as people experience, a, you know, a new, um, a new uh, hegemonic form, which is capitalism. And Marx is saying all this in the late 19th century. So look at the situation that we're in now, where it seems, you know, that all these great thinkers like Marx and Durkheim and Weber and, you know, the people who came later on developed on their ideas. You know, this is the world that they predicted would happen. But it's the world that they predicted would happen sort of, you know, on steroids, you know, it's um, with all these different um, competing realities, as I talk about in the book, you know, and this, these ideas of post-truth and um, the way that you choose your own reality and so on. So I think that that's a real kind of important element of the OA and of all the things that they've done that, you know, it's not that you choose your own reality, it's that you try and shape the reality that you're in in a way to find meaning, you know, and that you know comes through finding community, finding your tribe, as Prairie's character says in season two. But it, it is not about the kind of withdrawal from the world into a metaverse, you know, or into always being online. Um, you know, being, we hear about people being addicted to social media and so on. Um, have you seen the movie, um, uh, Miguel Vance, uh, The Congress, uh, the right movie? No, no I, I haven't. Have you? No. Okay, so the, I highly recommend it. It's um, The I'm, Conquest? The Congress. Oh, The Congress, okay. Congress, yeah. Um, so it's based on a novel by Stanislav Lem, you know, the, the great um, Russian uh, science oh. writer who wrote Solaris. Siberia too. Oh yeah, I've watched. Yeah, Solaris is awesome. Yeah. Um, okay, so it's his novel, The Futurological uh, Congress, but it's only very loosely based on it. So what happens in the movie is Robin Wright plays a version of herself, and she is uh, she's uh, obviously she's an actor, and she's got a kid who's terminally ill. So she's walked away from being a movie star to look after him, and um, there's. I can't remember the name of the studio, but it's basically Miramax. And it's run by a Harvey Weinstein character who makes her a deal. He'll give her a million dollars or whatever it is um, if she signs a contract saying that she'll never act again. But she'll digitize her likeness, like her full body likeness, and license it in perpetuity to this film studio. And they can make all these trashy movies that she won't make with her digitised persona, which is Rebel Robin or something like this. So that's the first half of the movie. The second half of the movie, which draws more on the the Lem novel, um, that is set 10 years later, set around now, I think, where you can take a drug which allows you to enter the animated zone. So Lem again, the idea of zones, you know. Um, So you've got, you become a cartoon character. And you enter into a kind of metaverse with all these other cartoon characters. You, you know, it's not particularly subtle, you know, kind of metaphor for the internet and online internet. So she does so and she becomes like a version of herself, but you can become whatever you want. And you've got like the blue minis from, you know, the Beatles, Yellow Submarine, they're in there as well. But there's also terrorists, and this is directly from the Lem novel. 
who want to return to reality. You know, they want to get away from this false um, consciousness that's been created. And there's also death camps in the animated zone, which are run by the Harvey Weinstein character. There is film was wow. years before um, Me Too and all the the exposition, you know, of the expose exposés rather of of uh, of uh, Harvey Weinstein. And then, so th- that part of the movie. Um, uh, is is animated, so it's live action then animated, then it returns to live action, where she breaks out of the animated zone, and you see what the world is really like. Okay, and you you know it's a depleted world, where there are an airborne elite, you know, because the world, the earth is broken, and the people on the ground are addicted to the animated zone. You know, so this idea, like the metaverse, is Zuckerberg is promoting it is such a defeatist idea. You know, it's, you know, it's not liberating you from anything. You, know? no. <laughs> you don't get to suddenly become, it denies the kind of physical reality of everything, of the inter, of internet use, you know, of, you know, repetitive strain injury or obesity or eye strain or, and the social realities of isolation of, um, you know, the, the uh, the anomic idea of of being cut off from things, and that's why I think nobody will really there'll be a metaverse. Matthew Ball, who um, is one of the guys behind Fortnite, and you know Fortnite's heavily, you know the the idea of the metaverse from from Zuckerberg's heavily dependent on a kind of Fortnite model. Um, Matthew Ball speculated that the metaverse is already here, um, and it was created by the pandemic and the migration of work and everything else to being online, including Zoom, right? right? But I think he's he's saying that, you know, intensively saying that a version of the metaverse is here. But what this kind of defeatist idea is completely the opposite of what you would get from the OA. I mean, the OA is about breaking through these layers of reality, which is why the kind of, the, you know, going into the metafictional element that there is very like Inland Empire at the end of the second season. It's so frustrating that they can't develop that. Um, but throughout their work, there is a sense that there's an optimism in their work. Um, as I also think there, there really was in um, The Invisibles, Grant Morrison, mm-hmm. which again is about forming a tribe, you know, like finding your people. Right. Um, but you don't find your people and then turn them you're back on the world, you know, you find your people and you, you know, that's your, your first step. And then your next step is to change the world. And this was, you know, the thing about the situation is Guy Debord. They, you know, there's, and I'll send you the image, uh, Miguel. Sure. The situation is, the determinable idea from the situation is, situation said they would never make anything original. Because they were against novelty. Novelty, as far as they were concerned, was a characteristic of capitalist production. The idea that there was always new things being produced to be consumed. So instead, they took existing work. I mean, Banksy, for example, is heavily influenced by uh, the situations. Banksy takes like an image of Ronald McDonald and Mickey Mouse and that young girl who's scalded by napalm during the Vietnam War. Uh kind of combines them all together to make a 
you know, kind of very um, direct comment about the relationship between, uh, you know, about the military industrial complex. So what, um, one of the things that the situation is did would, would be, they would take like comic books. And so the example that I'm going to mention is from an American romance comic from the 60s. And it's typical kind of panel, excuse me, where you've got um, the kind of ditzy blonde and the slightly more sensible brunette. So it's the kind of the Betty Veronica from Archie comics. It's not from Archie, but it's some kind of idea. And the dialogue has been changed. So it's an argument between two feminists. And the blonde uh, woman says... I love it. Right. Well, the blonde woman says, you know, why are you against us? Um you know, who well, you don't have to be a sex object. And the the darker woman says, I'm not a sex object, um, but I I want I don't I refuse to be a sex object, something like this. But then she says, My my argument with you is I don't want to reform capitalism. I want to change life. And that was the fundamental tenet of the situation is that you can't reform capitalism. It's someone has always suffered because of the exploitation that's at the heart of, of uh, the capitalist system. So you can't you know, kind of make it nicer or cosier or comfortable. Maybe for you it is, but you know, there's always going to be somebody in the developing world who's suffering because of it. And if you believe in a kind of international or global perspective, then you know, this is a political choice that you make if you want to change life. But then there's also the idea that all the comforts of the modern world, like the internet, movies, and all the things that we all love, um, if they become too important or too central to your life, um, then what that that itself is um, a form of addiction or it's a form of diminution of your experience. That you know th- these things are are becoming substitutes for. Um, an authentic or a direct, directly experienced life, and I think you know you see that in something like the Invisibles. You see that um, in the OA, and there's a great line from I think the final issue of the Invisibles, the one that was drawn by Frank Whiteley, where the Jack Frost character says, you know, like the Gnostics made a mistake. Their one mistake was to give up on the material world. Mm-hmm. The material world is a part of heaven we can touch. And I think, you know, what you know, what what's going on there is not to reject materialism um, or to, to reject pleasure or sensuality. It's about, you know, there's that great William Gibson quote, like the future's already here, it's just not evenly distributed. Right, yeah. <laughs> you know, I like, love that one. To to evenly distribute material wealth, to evenly distribute materiality. And, you know, I mean all these billionaires that are, you know, running the world, yeah. all this, all these, um, you know, Bezos, trying Musk, and their their plans for space or Zuckerberg or whatever, and uh, you know all the scandals that you hear about political corruption and so on. Um, how do we live in a world where we know that this is going on, um, when we know that every time that we we can't not consume? But every time we consume, we enrich these people further and so on. Um, so I think like you know, you, you really see that in a lot of this work that you a lot of the kind of stuff that we've been talking about here is that you have to find 
your tribe, you find like-minded people, and it doesn't matter if that's people that you meet online or in real life, but you don't use those communities or those you know, passions or interests that you have as um, a kind of compensation for everything else. You use them as sources of inspiration or ways of thinking about how to change the world. And I think that's the real power of the OA is that, you know, it's saying that this, you know, you, you mentioned when she quotes Krishnamurti, it's not a sign of health to be well-adjusted in a sick, I can't, I can never remember that quote, but to be well-adjusted in a society that is sick. Right. So, you know, I think, um, you know, that, that's the kind of thing that you see there, like, how do you find, how do you regain meaning in a world that is, you know, full of um, stimulation, that's full of pleasure? I mean, you know, I mentioned uh, Adorno earlier on, the, the, the German philosopher Theodore Adorno. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with Adorno's writing, Dialectic of Enlightenment. Yeah, um, briefly, yeah, superficially. Yeah. Um, so Adorno, you know, fled the Nazis, relocated to America, hated it, hated Hollywood particularly, um, and is quite often dismissed as being an elitist, you know, um, as being this European snob. But another way to look at Adorno is that he was a utopian philosopher, and he believed that, you know, the culture industry, Hollywood, pop music, all these things were ersatz versions of true art, true literature, true music. And that what you got was an ecstasy, it was a pleasurable experience rather than an ecstatic one, a transcendent one. And that, you know, that had to be recovered. Now, I have the greatest respect for, for Adorno, but I don't necessarily agree with him. There's also, incidentally, a great conspiracy theory about Adorno that you might know. Adorno was a classically trained composer, and the conspiracy is that he secretly wrote all the Beatles music. Um, to destabilise Western society. So I don't know if that's true or not. It's this idea of finding, you know, the, it's the kind of breaking idea that you mentioned at, at the start. You know, you need to break through in order to, to see the world anew, afresh, see it what it really is on one level, but also that that is a stage in enlightenment, but the enlightenment is not a kind of, retreat from the world it's and it, it's no surprise really that you know Brett Marlin should become friends and do the narration for a book by Naomi Klein you know because Naomi Klein is a journalist and an activist who um you know is talking about the human effects of things like you know uh, in the 90s she was talking a lot about branding you know when 90s is the decade of the brand you know like Nike and Gap and, um, you know, how fashionable and cool they were until it was exposed just how terrible their business practices were, you know, their exploitation of child labour and sweatshop labour and so on. And I think, you know, Britt Marlin's drawn to that and she thinks, she believes, as do I, that um, the pop culture doesn't have to be um, a compensation, something that makes you feel... Um, a bit better after a bad day or a bad week or a bad year, um, that pop culture can be something that isn't itself, you know, um, a kind of call to arms. You know, that it can make you, um, 
they can make you realise um, that there are alternatives to to the world that we live in. We are at the end. I should mention quickly, uh, David does have uh, many of the influences on the OA that you should check out, and he lists some plenty in his book, like Twilight Zone, A World of Difference, uh, Blurry Man, uh, Five Characters in Search of an Exit, uh, Star Trek Mirror Universe, of course, the show's Fringe and Sliders, uh, Michael Moorcock again. I am part of his Facebook group, and sometimes he gets annoyed when I'm emailing him a lot, but he is <laughs> the father of the one of the grandfathers of the multiverse, and of course, Philip K. Dick, all his works, including Man in the High Castle. So, um, yeah, where well, we are at the end, um, Vance, thank you so much for keeping us company. Sure, it's been an education. Uh, always love to hear about all these strange things. And I'll leave everybody with an observation I've known for years, which is philosophies are what rule the world eventually. And then the pop culture kind of emanates from them. Mm. So, you know, we got Marx, Popper, all the other people that have, um, you know, were the roots of a lot of these cultural things. So that's what I have to say. And goodbye, everybody. And thank you, David. Yes, and Dave, you mentioned two things. Where can people find out more about you, and uh, do you have a discount for your book? Yeah, I've just uh, sent that to you in the chat there. So there's a link, um, if you could maybe put that on your site. Yeah, yep. when the show comes up, I can I can put a link. Sure, no problem. Yeah, at Liverpool University Press, the, the link will take you straight to the book. And if you buy it, um, if you use the code OTOUR30, with OTOUR all in caps, you'll get 30% off. I don't have a website, but you, if um, I'll send us link to you as well. There's my page on the the art schools. Yeah, I've written it down, and I will, I will make sure it's on the show notes because it's definitely a worthwhile book. Well, th- yeah, this has been a great conversation. We appreciate your time. We certainly look forward to the next time we can chat. And uh, yeah, really appreciate everything, David. That's I've really enjoyed it too. So. Um, like I say, my book about, I don't know if you've read anything by Michael Marshall Smith, um, who also writes as uh, Michael Marshall and Michael Rutger. Um, as, as Marshall Smith, he, um, he was uh, very big in the 90s, um, very influenced by Douglas Adams, very influenced by Philip K. Dick. Um, so my book on him um, should, it comes out when it comes out. There's, as you know, there's all these delays with printers. Um, for various reasons on subterranean press but if I'll, I'll get a copy to you when that comes out it's not as gnostic I guess but um, if it's something that interests you I'd love to come back sure no of course yeah and we can pick up and talk about Lynch for sure let's do it right. yeah. awesome well right. David thank you very much and uh, yeah until the next time which will hopefully be sooner rather than later Thanks. Thanks very much, Miguel. Thanks, friends. Bye. And there you have it, you shining crazy diamonds. David Sweeney takes us to more than near-death experiences, but near-life experiences. In our second part, David will discuss some Adorno and other postmodernism. We'll finally get to and hit it hard when it comes to the bona fide Gnostic themes in the OA. This will include the hard parallels of Sophia and Prairie and the Demiurge and Hap. 
as well as the Valentinian themes in the show. David will talk about the concept of metaliposis. We'll get into a lot of David Lynch and Philip K. Dick. We'll also discuss other Gnostic-themed TV, like True Detective, and much more. So please become a Red Circle subscriber, Patreon at Patreon, or AB Prime member for the experience and tools to make you into the OA. And it really helps grow this Red Pill Cafeteria. I won't go into the usual long shilling, as I'm so dang busy with some game-changing content for ya in July. Red Pill suppositories that will crack real nice in your rectums of reality. But please support and keep in mind that I will always give you a full show on the casa if you need that gnosis. Other than that, thanks for being here. Thanks for being yourself, your true self, here in the desert of the real. Hello and goodbye, as always. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership. We're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.